scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, and that'll be verses 1 through 7, that'll be page 1072 in your pew Bible. Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Also, I'd like to add that uh, we keep our brother Tim uh, in prayers. He's a little under the weather today, and he's got a big week starting with tomorrow work. So pray that the Lord will sustain him, that uh, he can carry out his job. George, would you lead us, please?
you take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 160, 160 in the brown. Four fifteen in the brown four one five.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, page 1913 in your few Bibles. And when you come to that, please stand with us. Revelation 1, starting at verse 10, and going to verse 20. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. <clears throat> and when I turned, <clears throat> I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. <clears throat> the hair on his head was like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of a rushing waters. In his right hand, <coughs> in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like this sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, and now look I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in the right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches to the angel of the church in Ephesus. You take your Brahm hymnal again and turn to number 175. 175.
Our scripture text this morning is the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and following. I have been thinking for some time on the discouragement which living in a sinful world brings to the people of God. We see the indifference, maybe even hostility, which people have towards God and His Son, Jesus. And that disturbs us greatly because nothing in God, nothing in His Son is intended to do people harm, but only good. But they hate him. That sounds perhaps strong, but the scripture is evident about that. We see a rejection of in people of the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news that God loves sinners and has set in motion a plan to save them from self-destruction. But the good news isn't good news to many. Even some of our own family members may mock the idea of needing to be saved from the coming judgment. This discourages us because we cannot bear to think that those we love will perish because of their willful rebellion to their Creator. But we know that that's in the offings if indeed no one repents and trusts in Christ. What is more, we see a proliferation of evil in our society. The predicted time when men call evil good and good evil. That's our day. And this saddens us because we see our great country slipping into the corruption 
and moral degeneracy which brought down Rome to its knees and to its eventual dissolution as a nation. Any who love this country do not want to see this happen to America. We know that if America falls, the other democratic countries will crumble in a matter of days. We see our children and grandchildren facing a godless culture sold out to hedonism, greed, self-indulgence, and utter disregard in the society for righteous standards of conduct and a love for the truth. All these things are true. Can't deny them. They come to us from every arena in life except our church life, which in but a few hours a week tries to offset and bring correction and consolation and sanity to the insane way in which all of mankind seems to be rushing with glee towards destruction and loss. People's lives are disjointed, they're rebellious, they're destructive to family, enamored with sin and its pleasures, but totally oblivious to sin's ruin and heartache. Such things affect our Christian world as well as these things come into our Christian homes and they rob us of peace, of purpose in life, of direction, of a sense of accomplishment and good, of hope for the future. I mean, it's as though the evil world is about to swallow us up and God isn't there to help. So this series, which I'm beginning today, on the glory of Christ, is intended to point out to you that God is very much there to help. But our vision of him has been obscured by all the filth and lies of the world. Any of you doing any kind of driving in the wintertime Yay, it's coming, right? (laughs) On those snow-covered streets with sleet and thaw and road grime being tossed up on your windshield by the car in front of you, you know how difficult it is to keep the windshield clean. If you run out of washer fluid or your washer doesn't work at all, you're in a world of hurt Because in about a few hundred yards of driving, you won't be able to see properly out your windshield. We try to see the road with all that dirt. We try to keep the car from drifting off into the shoulder. We try to stay in our lane with the light of oncoming traffic beaming through the grime. But it's practically impossible I remember one trip with Donna and I coming back from vacation, Christmas vacation in Pennsylvania and we came across uh, Canada which was the route we normally took 
and we were out on the Queens Highway, and it was snowing to beat the van, and the plow trucks were out, but they couldn't keep up. Donna was driving at this particular time, and she says, I can't see, I can't see. I said, well, then you better pull over and let me try it for a while. And she pulled off into the uh, rough area of the uh, berm, only she went too far. And that snow grabbed her and threw us truck and our car and all down in, into the ditch. The grime, the dirt, the filth, all of that just, it pulled us right away from the roadway. Well, it's practically impossible to drive in situations like that. Sometimes it's wise just to get off at the next exit and either take a back road that's slow and cumbersome or find a motel and make it your spot for the night. Well, in the same way, in the spiritual realm, as we try to navigate down the road which leads to eternal life, Christ is the white line on the road which gives us our bearings in the black of night. He's the road sign along the road which announces the dangerous curves ahead so that we can slow down and negotiate those curves safely. Christ is the living water which washes clear our grimy windshield, thereby permitting us to see with certainty the way to go and how to get there. So what I am proposing in this series is a fresh look at old truths about Jesus to see him anew and in seeing to rid ourselves of misconceptions we may have to correct error and to appreciate him as the God who is there. He's there. Now we will not be studying his life sequentially as presented in the Gospels. We've done that before. But we will be relying heavily on the Gospel accounts. Our text this morning is appropriately called The Revelation. The Revelation. And what is it that Christ reveals to us about himself through the vision which John saw and records for us, and it is the book of Revelation. Well, among many things, perhaps this most elementary truth has been forgotten. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 tells us the lampstands represent seven churches, and verse 11 names those churches. And among the lampstands, the churches, was someone like a son of man. Verse 13. Verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. That is the beginning and the end of life and everything in between. I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hates. 
What is the elementary basic truth we have forgotten which Christ reveals to the Apostle John and to us in this text? It is this. Christ, the Lord of life, who holds the keys of death and hell, stands among the seven churches. Indeed, among every church body which believes in him as the living God that he is. And his standing among us is intended to calm our hearts and compel us, verse 17, not to be afraid. Christ is here among us. He has always been among us. He has never left us nor forsaken us as he promised. We just don't see him clearly because of all the rolled grime on our spiritual windshield. Too many other things have created layers of crud through which we must try to maintain our focus. And it is not Christ who has fogged our vision, but our own sinful distractions, our own settling for lesser things to satisfy our souls. In other words, we sold Christ out for cheap plastic beads. And now we're left with junk jewelry instead of possessing the crystal diamond sparkle of that real gemstone. Christ, in his glory, is there. But we have been too often only seeing his humility, his humiliation. So my intent in this series is that we take a second look and look at Jesus' self-disclosure, how he reveals himself in the scriptures. I think it's good for others to praise us in our endeavors. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says it that. Let another person praise you and not your own mouth. But there are limitations in such praise because men look on the outward appearance too many times and they don't see the real person of whom they speak. And so the subject of our praise might be distorted because we see that person only superficially, only as regards what he or she is willing for us to see. We cannot read thoughts. We cannot read motives, so we reason backwards deductively from what is seen to what we think is unseen. Paul, with regard to God's Son, put it this way, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? 1 Corinthians 2.16 
if indeed there's going to be any accurate disclosure of Christ, the Lord, it will have to be Christ himself who reveals these things. And happy for us, Jesus does this very thing in the witness of the Bible. You cannot know Christ any other way. No other way. Consider with me, for example, Jesus' baptism. Singularly important event as it marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Firstly, I'm going to read a text from Mark. Mark 1. In verse 4, John the Baptist had been preaching, quoting now, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 1, verse 4. John announced his baptism as preparation for the appearance of the Messiah, who already, standing among the people, was unknown. Yet he was about to be revealed. Look at chapter 1 of John, and we'll look at verse 26. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands among you. Right there, right, right then, see? Among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And this ha- all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. John says that Jesus is greater than him. All the people were flocking out to John, and John was baptized. How's he greater than John? Well, he's greater in his person. John says that he, John, is not worthy to untie the thongs of Jesus' sandals, that is, even to be a servant. So close to the Lord to be able to touch his feet. John says, I'm not even worthy of that. Again, John is temporal. He's of this world, of space and time. But he says of Jesus, He was before me. Verse 30. So we're talking about dimensions here that are supernatural. Again, Jesus is greater in his work. John baptizes with water, the symbol for cleansing, but Jesus baptizes with the reality, the Holy Spirit, the divine agent who alone can bring life cleansing to men dead in trespasses and sins. 
Mark 1, verse 8. Again, John's work was preparatory for Jesus' appearance. A voice of one calling in the desert, telling people in no uncertain terms to make straight the way of the Lord. John 1, verse 23. And he was saying to the people, Get ready. Get right. God stands among us, and he's about to be revealed. The God of truth, the God of judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barns and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, verse 12. But Jesus also comes as Savior, taught John. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. To the baptism of John, then, Jesus comes, and John is somewhat taken back by this. He had no doubt heard of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' miraculous conception and birth from his own parents. John's parents are Zechariah and Elizabeth. But whatever John knew and believed about Jesus, it was still inferior to what he was about to learn of Jesus at his baptism. Here we are beholden to the declaration of God himself in a voice from heaven. And as Jesus emerged from the waters of the Jordan River, the scripture says he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, on Jesus, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Mark 1, verse 10 and 11. And John admits that he would not have known him, reading scripture, except that the one who sent me, the one who sent him to baptize with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, says John, and I testify that this is the Son of God. John 1, verse 33 and 34. The declaration of Jesus from the voice of heaven, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Seen by many Bible commentators as fulfillment to two biblical prophecies. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, writes Isaiah, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And the other passage is Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. 
End quote. Now what mere mortal on earth has ever had the pronouncement of God from heaven, you are my son? Or has heard the accolade of God, with you I am well pleased? Or knows the assurance that God upholds him at all times as his chosen one, the one on whom God has placed his own Holy Spirit? These are unique and astonishing statements indeed. And they fill us with a sense of awe, as surely as John himself must have experienced on this occasion. These words speak of a unique relationship to God the Father, and they tell us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is not Joseph, the carpenter's son, as his later critics would scorn. No, he is God's son. And not God's son in the sense that we, who believe in God, are called the sons of God or the children of God, but rather God's son in that unique relation of being the chosen servant, indeed the only servant upon whom the Spirit of God is given without measure. And for the stated purpose of fulfilling the will of God on earth, in ushering in the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God cannot come without the king. And the king comes as God's chosen one, indwelt with the very spirit of God, in whose power the kingdom comes. Writes Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He's not going to judge on the basis of his external senses. But he will judge with righteousness, the needy with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will say to the wicked, Power in the spoken words, let there be light, and there will be light. Isaiah 11, verse 2 and following. And that's applied to Jesus himself in Luke 4, verse 18 and So, Isaiah 42, 1 through Isaiah 53 is a composite of servant songs in which God tells us just what it is his chosen servant will do to usher in the kingdom of God. The culmination of his work is depicted in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in which we are told, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, 
though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse 4 and following of Isaiah 42. So this then is how we must understand Jesus' baptism and the Spirit's descent and the Father's words. Jesus came to John's baptism of repentance, not because he was a sinner who needed to repent of sin and be cleansed, but because he is God's servant son, whose specific task is to identify with sinners and to be their savior in anticipation of his death on the cross. Here then, in the waters of an incongruous baptism, Jesus takes his place alongside of sinners, as in later life he will take the place of sinners under the wrath of God's judgment. In his baptism, Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah says, submitting to the baptism belonging to them, identifying with them in their position as sinners before God, taking all of their guilt upon himself. James Denny, in his book, The Glory of Christ, writes, in that hour, in the will and act of Jesus, the work of atonement was begun. While the voice of God from heaven is announcing the servant he has chosen, the one who is well-pleasing to him, Jesus the Son is acting out servant role of Isaiah 53. What's that? Dying for God's people, being buried and resurrected to life, which is the symbolism of water baptism. Jesus left the waters public baptism, beginning his ministry as the servant God, the servant son of God, for whom in his own words the time has come, says Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1 verse 15. So this is monumental. This is Christ's beginning his ministry and addressing the people from the get-go of what it is going to involve. So what do we learn? Well, number one, Jesus stands among us as his people and in so doing, he identifies with our infirmities that he is willing to be baptized with a sinner's baptism. And when I say this, it should be noted that this was the determined plan of Christ in fulfilling the will of God. The voice from heaven saying, With you I am well pleased, is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There has been no temptation in the wilderness. There's been no public teaching, no persecution from the Jewish officials, no establishment of the church. The disciples aren't even chosen yet. 
There has been no trial, no torture, no cross, no crucifixion. But God still says, with you I am well pleased. That's the Father, God the Father saying. What can this mean? Pleased with his life up to that point? In time? Yes, undoubtedly. For Jesus said that he always does what pleases the Father. John 8, verse 29. But more specifically, God was pleased that Jesus is going to John to be baptized with the baptism associated with sinners. He was taking his task of identifying with God's sinful people very seriously. He was, in fact, up to the task as that one whose service to God and saint alike would have a cross in the future. In other words, Christ willingly and wholeheartedly stands with his people, come what may. And he knows what's coming. But the sure prospect does not frighten him away or cause him to disown us before we are purchased with his shed blood. Chosen in the beloved, he loves us at the beginning. Yes, before there was a beginning. Before eternity loomed on the horizon, before Adam and Eve existed, before sin entered the world, before we are born and had done anything good or evil, as the case may be. Christ stands among us and with us. He has always been there. Never once has he been missing. Never once has he had to be convinced against his will to cry out the servant role of Savior which God predestined him to do. What is more, his standing among us and with us was with you in mind. We read in the revelation of those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. The text says, written, mind you now, written before the creation of the world. Revelation 17, verse 8. Wow. I think it's one thing for God to know the number of his elect and to tell us that it is an innumerable host which no man can count. Revelation 7, verse 9. But I think it's quite another thing to have the names of the actual individuals who comprise that number written down in a book before those people even exist. This is astonishing. Christ 
came for you. That's what this tells me. He came for me. Christ stands with you. Christ identifies with your sin, your heartache, your alienation from God the Father. Christ comes to save you if you repent and believe. And God the Father is well pleased with his decision. You should be too. As Peter says, there's salvation. No other. Christ is the only Savior the world's going to get. And if he has your name written in the ledger, it's a done deal. The second thing we learn here is that whatever Christ is, he is first and foremost the servant of God, indwelled by the Spirit of God to do his will. This business of the Holy Spirit descending upon him is his empowerment for teaching the things he will teach, for performing the miracles he will perform, for doing the things he's going to do, for praying the prayers he's going to pray, for resisting temptations of the evil one, and for staying true and faithful to the word of God, though all the world turn against him. One of the reasons the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes hated Jesus so much was that in his leadership and teaching and actions and behavior, he lived the godly life which they only talked about but seldom practiced. Sinful men cannot stand the sinless man. Wicked schemers cannot abide the one in whose mouth is no deceit. The very reason why believers are drawn to Christ, his purity, his holiness, is also the very reason why the unregenerate flee from Christ. He's incorruptible. He cannot be made like us. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be diverted off course. He cannot be tempted. He cannot be solicited to do evil. He cannot be bought. He does not sell his soul for the world, let alone worthless trinkets. He is always and ever filled by the Holy Spirit of God. He cannot be less than the God who animates him. Hebrews 7 verse 26 says, Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Wow. That's what's going to take to meet our need? That tells me that we are very needy people. Let me read it again. Such a high priest meets our needs. One who's holy, blameless, pure, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's what we need to meet our need. 
say, now wait a minute, have, have we not seen this morning that Jesus identifies with sinners in accepting the sinner's baptism, and now we are told he is separate from sinners. I know it seems contradictory, but it's not. To identify with sinners is not the same as being a sinner. To take the place of a sinner is not the same as sinning. A person is stepping in to take the blame for something you did, not him. But he's still stepping in. We must love both truths about Jesus. That he is identified with his people so that he can represent them as mediator before God and that he himself is holy so that his mediation is acceptable and not compromised by personal failure. He is a Savior who stands with us to save us. He is also a Savior who stands distinct from us to save us. We need both in our high praise if his offering of his own body on the tree is going to be acceptable to God. On him alone, the Holy Spirit rests and remains without limitation. Thirdly, to say that Jesus is both of us and distinct from us is to identify him alone as God's unique son. Man, yes, but even more, God himself in the flesh. For more than 2,000 centuries, the church has preached this person served him, loved him, praised him, written hymns about him, worshipped him. And in all of that time, no one has even suggested that we exchange Jesus with some of the godly men of history, like Augustine or Luther or Wesley. Why is it that Jesus occupies such a unique position in the church which is actually forbidden to any other. The church has afforded Christ that position because Christ himself has demanded that position as the God he is. C.S. Lewis writes it this way. The church has made many claims for the carpenter from Nazareth, but none higher than he made for himself. The church has not been extravagant in its devotion to him. It has only been loyal and faithful in responding to the devotion he claimed and still claims for himself. What did he claim? Well, Jesus preached as no prophet or apostle 
or preacher has ever preached. Jeremiah did not preach Jeremiah. Peter did not preach Peter. Calvin did not preach Calvin. Jonathan Edwards did not preach Jonathan Edwards. But Jesus Christ preached Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, We do not preach ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. But Jesus could never testify to that. He was, he is, central to the gospel he preached. Indeed, the gospel is not good news without Christ. It has no power to save without him. So he's going to preach himself. The only Savior God has ordained. May I say that the church did not produce Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ produced the church. And what flows in the church's teaching about Christ, and in particular, his deity. He himself proclaimed so that we are left with no other position than to worship him. C.S. Lewis writes it this way. People often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You cannot spit at him and kill him as a demon. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So what C.S. Lewis is saying, Christ has revealed himself as the Son of God. And if you're going to downgrade him to being a great spiritual teacher... You're messing with salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I close with this question. What do you think? What do you think of Jesus? Is he just a great teacher of 
morality and honorable ethics that won't save there has been gobs and gobs of human teachers that have taught good moral ethics but they still die And what does that tell us? The wages of sin is death. Sin, death, sin, death. Oh, sinner can't help me. Also, a sinner. We need the sinless Son of God. What do you think of Jesus? He is God's Son, sanctioned by the Almighty Himself to save lost sinners. And as Paul, or as Peter put it in the book of Acts, there is none other name given among men by which we must be saved. Go look for a Savior somewhere else, Peter is suggesting. You won't find him. There's no other name. In all of heaven, than that which God has given us in Christ. Unique. And the world wants nothing to do with unique Jesus. They talk about Jesus in purely humanistic terms. And I'm sorry, but a humanistic Jesus can say no. No. He must be God's beloved and uniquely begotten Son of God, or He's no Savior for anybody. And I'm not suggesting anything different than Christ Himself proclaimed about Himself. take his message of the cross his message of believers baptism and so forth we take all of this very seriously as unique to him and therefore the only savior that the father is going to accept the people would just meditate on why would God send his son from heaven to become a man to live his life about 33 years to be ill-treated by the religious estate of his day to be falsely accused to be tortured and beaten and eventually put on a cross 
Why would he do that if there were some means by which you and yours are going to make it to glory? I wouldn't do that. I would pursue those other means. But there are none. That's why we love this Savior. Not only was he sent by the Father, but he willingly gave his life for his people. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your sacrificial son. You sent him, but we read in the scriptures that he gave himself up to your plan. And in that there's great glory and praise and worship that goes to the Son as well as to the Father. And we thank you. We do. The world continues to hunt its own ways, scratching and digging along the way, supposing that it can save itself through good works or some other endeavors. And then the gospel comes along and says you can't do it. God will not accept anything but the work of his son, which makes sense. Why would the son go through all of that if there were another way. Bless these truths to our heart. Remove the scales and the grime and the dirt from our eyes. Let us see Christ among us, saving us. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 241 is the hymn. Two four one in the red.
Lord, what these truths tell us this morning that we have studied is that our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is not accidental. From eternity past to the present, if we know the Lord today through saving faith and repentance, it is because in eternity past you wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in time, space, history, you came to us with the gospel. You gave us faith to receive it and repentance to flee from our sin. And you poured out your Holy Spirit upon us. And that's why we are the children of God today. Do that for someone here today. We pray, Lord, our children, our young adults, our older adults, whatever, the spiritual condition, if it's deprived of your life and of your grace, I pray that you will pour out your mercy on them today. Bless the truths of your word and help us in relating the gospel to our loved ones and friends to tell them the truth. That is, that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Not now, not ever. I pray, Lord, that you will work in our society, work in our families to bring them to the place of the cross, to forgiveness and truth. And we'll praise you for what you will do as what you have done for us. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.